and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know about a program that I'm currently running for executives. So I launched my first cohort in January, and the idea of the cohort is to coach individual executives over a 12-session, six-month span, and at the end of those 12 sessions, bring those people together for a day-long retreat. So we just finished our first cohort and are excited to launch our second cohort that'll start in early July. So the idea of the cohort, once again, is to bring together 10 leaders. These are people that are aged 30 to 60 years old. They are in leadership positions, management positions in the corporate world, and it's all going to be one-on-one coaching. So if you are not in the DC area, you can be coached over Zoom. And if you're local, you can come to my office in Bethesda, Maryland. So if this is something that you're interested in, if you consider yourself to be a lifelong learner, you're curious, you're driven, you want to take your game to the next level, uh, feel free to reach out to me via email. It's brian at blevinson.com. Once again, that's brian at blevinson.com. And we can chat and figure out if you'd be a good fit for our second cohort, which as I said, launches in early July. Now to today's guest. Heidi Shamaradi is somebody who I heard speak recently at a charity event for an organization called Sasha Bruce. And I was invited to that event by my good friends, Josh and Morgan Genderson. And I heard Heidi speak and I found her to be extremely inspiring. She shared her story about how she was homeless when she was in high school and how this organization, Sasha Bruce, helped her find herself and helped her land on her feet. And from there, she has gone on to work in politics. And today she has her own firm, which some would call a lobbying firm. She calls it an educating firm. But at any rate, she really has become a big player in Washington, D.C. and on Capitol Hill and has made a massive impact on the homeless community, not just in D.C., but all over the country, and also in dealing with transportation and how we see transportation in this country. So Heidi has worked with some of the most influential people in our government, and she's going to share how she came to get to that point, and also some of the challenges that she's had along the way. So at the end of 
the day, Heidi is just someone who is kind, who's grateful, who looks for the best in life. And I think that's going to come across in this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Heidi Shamarati. Heidi, excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's my first. It's your first. So <laughs> we don't know what's going to come out of this, but it's going to be fun and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it and maybe I'll turn you on to other podcasts that you can share your story with. Um, I first heard your, your story at an event for Sasha Bruce. And for those that aren't familiar with Sasha, Sasha Bruce, can you give us a little insight into what they do and how they do it and just provide some background on Sasha Bruce? Sure. Uh, so Sasha Bruce is an organization here in D.C. There's a um, facility in Prince George's County as well, but uh, the, the mission is to help youth homeless. Uh, there are several programs um, for teen moms or well, actually I shouldn't say teen moms, but um uh, women with children uh, that need a place to go, uh, youth at you know age eighteen to twenty four is is the category now. When I was in Sasha Bruce, it was actually for younger teens who were still in high school as well. So uh, the mission has has moved on to older youth uh, to help facilitate and and uh, provide for them and help them to become independent adults. Awesome. And you mentioned that you were part of the program. So give us some background on your story, your journey, how you ended up there. Give us some some background on you. Oh, gosh. Um, hopefully I won't bore people. But uh, so I was born in this area. Uh, my father uh, came here on a student visa from Iran, uh, met my mom, that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, they divorced when I was a younger, at a younger age. Uh, we moved to Pennsylvania, uh, where my mom was from, her hometown, did my elementary middle school years in Pennsylvania, very rural town. Then um, found myself uh, mingling with the crowd my mother would have preferred me not to. Uh, and uh, so she actually sent me away to a boarding school. Where was dad at the time? Dad stayed here in Georgetown, um, where he lived. Uh, but, you know, I, I would see him, you know, not as often as a younger child would have liked to. But um, he, you know, we remained in our lives. And any siblings? I have an older brother who's about four years older than me. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, did, did a year at this Milton Hershey School, uh, which was an awesome experience. Uh, I have lifelong friendships with all my Milt brothers and sisters. Um, but as you can imagine, the structure was not something that I was used to and really did not like it. So I, uh, contacted my father and made it sound how wonderful it would to have a nice, vibrant teenager living with him who he had never experienced that with. Uh, so I did, I moved in with my father down here in DC, um, went to high school here in DC, but as you can imagine, um, a Muslim, father coming from you know that background he just wasn't um it was a very strict environment and I just rebelled um, and what was mom what was the envi environment with mom when you were up in Pennsylvania with her um I mean you know we got along it was just you know I was a very rebellious teenager um and didn't like to listen um and thought that I knew everything um, so we had a great relationship other than the fact, I mean, she was an awesome, you know, 
did the best that she could with with a rebellious teenager looking back and your brother was he rebellious as well um he he did his own thing from what i've learned over the years but he would always tell me i just didn't get caught so um no he he definitely was not as uh, difficult of a child to raise that i was and was religion a big part of your upbringing with mom with dad what, what was religion like confusing uh, my mom, who uh, raised us as uh, Methodist, uh, my father is a Shiite. Um, you know, I didn't grow up Muslim, but definitely when moved when I moved in with him, um, I had to learn about kind of the Muslim culture, the religion itself. Um, he didn't force it upon me, but I uh, definitely had to learn and understand. He's not very religious, which, um, you know, looking back was was great for me, you know, cause it could have been a lot worse. Um, you know, having that Americanized, you know, Western mentality, um, it would have been much more difficult to, to move into that structured religious. Um, but no, he didn't, he, he didn't follow, um, as, as others do. Uh, so it wasn't so bad, but, um, I definitely did have to learn kind of the basics of the religion. And when you go back to the divorce, are there vivid memories of the actual split or like how how do you how did you make sense of the divorce? No, I you know, I was young. Um, I have no recollection at all. I mean from what I recall, you know, I just grew up in Pennsylvania as a younger uh child, um, and thought that that's the way it was. You know, oh you go visit your dad every other weekend or once a month or once every other month. Um, so I, I don't have any recollection of why they were divorced at all. And then when you're in DC and you're rebelling, uh, what, what comes next for you? So what's interesting is that I did leave out. Um, so in middle school, uh, is where I met, uh, my boyfriend, uh, who is my now husband, who I reconnected with 18 years later. Um, and, um, he, he was, uh, long distance. It was about 30 minutes, and back then, you know, 30 miles was long distance and, and definitely didn't have the access of talking all the time. So I um, definitely ran up some phone bills communicating with him, which is... How did you guys meet? Through a friend, a friend of a friend. You know, my, my best friend at the time was dating his best friend, so then we kind of all started hanging out. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know, it's a funny story because because of him, I got sent away. And, you know, he likes to say to my mom, well, hey, look at how she turned out. And if she wouldn't have got sent away, she wouldn't be in this awesome position she is in now. So you're welcome. Um, you know, you can laugh about it now, but it was definitely uh, not a happy moment for my mom back in the day. And talk about Sasha Bruce. So uh, when did that become a resource for you and something that you felt like you needed? So uh, like I was saying about my father, just moving into this very structured Muslim-like uh, household you know, he didn't understand teenagers. He didn't understand why I had more than one friend. Why was the phone ringing all the time? Why are you on the phone? Uh, it was just too much for me to bear. Um, and so, you know, I, I just done talking to friends at school. I learned about Sasha Bruce. And um, I literally packed my bags, threw them out the window of our building, and had a friend drive me my uh, 10th grade year no, I guess it was my 11th grade year that summer going into my senior year. Um, had had my friend drive me to Sasha Bruce, uh, the Bruce house there on Maryland Avenue. And I uh, stayed there 
for a couple of weeks until they found a place for me. You know, you, you, you essentially, every, everyone has a story. Everyone's situation is different. Um, some people are brought in through the court system. Some are walk-ins. Uh, I was a walk-in. Um, and they found uh, the Independent Living Program, which is uh, on East Capitol Street, still exists today. Um, but I lived there my entire senior year of high school. Um, and um, it was just an amazing opportunity for someone like me who felt like I had no place to turn, couldn't go back to Pennsylvania because my mom, you know, she didn't want to take me back in. Yeah, what was her reaction when she heard that you, you left? So she was not happy. And, you know, I didn't tell, I was, a, you know, obviously I didn't want to tell my father where I was. Um, and, you know, I knew it was important for me to tell somebody, my mom, that I was fine, I was safe. I'm at this place. I, you know, I was nervous about telling her where I was because I didn't want my father to come get me. Um, Do you think he would have? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it would have it would have not been a good situation um, just because, you know, you, you never leave your home. You know, running away is not an option for someone who, um, you know, has kind of that. The male runs the household kind of live, you know, that upbringing. Um but it turned out to be the best thing ever for us because we, our relationship, you know, I'd say my mom, you know, I told her that I was safe. She eventually knew where I was and she communicated with him for the first couple of weeks just saying, look, she's fine. She's safe. I'm talking to her at some point. You will know um, you guys really need to work on your relationship. Is and there one thing that sparked it that was, that you know, was there one event? How vivid is that night where... Or it sounds like night where you pack your bags and, and throw them out the window and, and go out. Can you can you go to that that time? Um, I mean, you know, look, I, I, I was not the best child um, in terms of listening. And I'm sure he whooped my ass, you know, gave me gave me the licking that I probably know that I needed and deserved. But um, once I knew I had somewhere that I could go, I, you know, I wasn't worried about, right? Like I, I knew that, okay, I just was not staying here anymore. And that's when I opted to leave. So from your perspective, you were not, as an adult, you look back and you say, okay, I was probably not acting the way that I should have been acting. Um, and then my dad didn't really know what to do with that rebelliousness. And so that causes this friction and it gets to a boiling point where I just have to go. I can't stay here anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly what happened. And then you have this opportunity to go somewhere else where you get to have some independence, some structure. What was so good about that experience for you at that time in your life? Right. And I and I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about Sasha Bruce. You I just only, needed to go somewhere. Yeah, I knew that there was this safe house that you can go talk to people. I didn't know that I would ultimately be in this independent living program um, that the organization had to offer. Like I said, there's many different programs that it has, and they kind of fit people into where where the best needs are for them. Um, and luckily, the independent living program was was ideal for, for my situation. Um, so, yeah, I moved in there. Um, another fortunate thing that I was blessed with um, at the age, I guess I was probably 16, I was probably in... 10th or 11th grade, uh, Mayor Marion Barry had the summer youth employment program, which, you know, every DC resident that's my age probably had a summer youth employment program, uh, job. Um, but I got placed at the U S department of transportation and 
worked there that summer and they really liked me and said, hey, we'd love to hire you um, while you're in high school. If you can somehow work out your schedule, um, be great for you to just catch the train come work here part-time why do they like you because the picture that i have up until now is of this wild teenage girl but there's got to be some other pieces to you that someone saw potential in so what what did they see in you back then you know i don't know if it's the gemini in me or what but um i definitely had this um you know in school i i knew I was never disrespectful in school. I don't know why I treated my mom and felt like I had this independence that needed to be bringing out, but I was never a disrespectful girl. Um, You know, I was, uh, I remember like middle school, I talked to my son who's 14 now and I I tell him, look, you can't be disrespectful to your teachers, yada, yada. Look, if, if, if what you're thinking is, you know, brown nosing your teachers, like there's, there's something to learn from kind of just being a respectful child. I've, But, um, you know, I was um, in the cleanup crew in the cafeteria or I was the the office aide. I was the nurse's aide. I was always trying. I enjoyed working. Something about a work ethic I did actually enjoy. Where did that come from? I have no idea. Mom and dad, are they like that? No. Brother? (laughs) No. Oh, especially no. (laughs) (laughs) Love my brother, but no. Um, So there's something innate inside you that wanted to be active, wanted to be a doer an achiever, get attention for a recognition for doing some yeah. good, some good stuff. Look, my mom, she's always worked hard, right? And she's worked for the federal government pretty much all her life. Um, and oddly enough, when she was in DC, she actually worked at the same agency that I was placed at Wow! and which small world, right? Um, but there was no rhyme or rationale why I got selected by Mary, Mary, Mary's, um, summer youth program to actually be placed at the same agency, um, that she, my uncle, Um, others had been placed at when they were 18 and brought from Pennsylvania. They used to bus, I guess, um, outside folks um, in for employment. But yeah, I worked there and um, I just, I really enjoyed it. I liked staying busy. um, And, and I guess, I don't know, they saw potential in me that I probably didn't see myself. um, But it, it was a great opportunity. Um, Most of them, like, you know, my supervisor's eventually knew my story um you know they didn't right away because at the time I was living with my father um but you know they offered me this sweet opportunity um I took it not thinking that it would ultimately blossom into something long term and that would be kind of the career path that I chose but um I, I did that and worked my 11th and 12th grade years at the Department of Transportation and my boss at the time was like look if you um, stay in the area you know we could help out with college and I played softball I was competitive softball and that's something that I I did since I was probably five years old I started playing softball back in Pennsylvania it was on traveling team just uh, that was something that that I you know my mom made sure that I stuck with because it was something that I enjoyed um so I actually, you know, played D.C., um, you know, brought fast pitch to Washington, D.C., something that they didn't have in the high school system. Wait, so you you brought it from Pennsylvania because you were doing... I was the pitcher. And so you came here, and what were they doing? Did they not play softball before They played guys? softball, but it was um, more like, yeah, lobbing the ball. Wow. And, um, so Wilson High School, every year that I was there, we were the 
Because uh, you were city throwing, champions. You were throwing yeah. flames and everybody yeah. else was lobbing it in. It was great. So, you know, if you Google my name, you can see the all-star, the all-met. Um, no. How cool is that? Yeah. So it, it was good. It was fun. And it was it was something for me to redirect energy to, right? So, you know, I, I wasn't the pitcher on my traveling team, you know, because they were a lot better than me. But it was just funny how, you know, I, I laugh about it with my girlfriends who I was on a travel. I was like, oh, I'm the pitcher. And they're like, what? What is wrong with these people? Um, but it was fun. It was, it was a good time. Um, like I said, it, it kept me out of trouble. Um, still have great relationships with, with people that I played softball with to this day. When you, when you started working for the transportation stuff, did you find it interesting from the get go? No. Yeah. Well, so what was that like for you? It was just different, right? Like I, you know, I was just like doing filing and, and just, organizing and I'm and to this day I'm very organized very structured like I like neatness um and it was just like a complete disaster um so it was just something that I was able to go in take ownership of you know they literally had very unorganized system and and I was able to revamp that and I think that was just something that they saw in me now looking back um but no like the issues I didn't find interesting at all it was just it was a job right I was 16 17 and I was getting paid, and I was getting paid pretty good as a federal employee too. You know, it was it was like twice the federal or the wage limit, so it was just, I was excited about it. So you're playing softball, you've got a job. What were you like academically? Um, so coming from having the Pennsylvania education background, right? Um, I can definitely say it was a much higher level than coming to DC. DC was an eye opener. Like I remember my first day of school, and. Um, calling my mom and telling her that some kids stole a car and we're riding around the kiss and ride up and down around tree slammed into a tree. You know, it was just like, it was completely, it was, it was a huge difference from coming from rural Pennsylvania. Um, but I probably took advantage of that and knowing that I was the star athlete of, of the school for softball. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time in class like I probably should have. I hung out in the gym, um, but um, school came pretty easy to me, um, so I didn't really worry about my grades. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't no straight-A student by no means, but um, definitely, you know, a, a B, might have had a C kind of report card. I mean, it, 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 I didn't have to work hard for it, but it, it didn't come easy either and you threw in before this idea that hey if I work here they can help me with college they had no idea right so, so you didn't know that no had no idea um you know just um I wasn't sure what I was gonna do right like I knew that I wanted to go to school I thought well I knew that this once I graduated high school I was thinking okay I'm no longer gonna be able to work for the for this job right because I was in like a student program um, and literally my boss, um, who I think at this time, you know, they had, he had a, a daughter that was about my age and I think he kind of looking back, you know, he like took me under his wing, saw me as kind of like a daughter figure by then they knew my situation. Um, so I'm sure there was some sympathy, some empathy of, you know, trying to help me. Um, definitely blessed with, with many opportunities along my journey, but he, he told me, he said, look, if you, um, stay in school, go to college around here, and you can work in kind of a working schedule. We'll help 
pay for some of, you know, it, you know, obviously it'd have to be, you know, at that point I wanted to be a social worker. You know, I feel like everyone who has this background growing up or they go through some sort of, um, whether it's the system or some sort of um, program like I did, uh, you feel like you want to give back and, and be in the social work environment. Till I learned that uh, there wasn't much money in that environment. And I knew living in D.C. was difficult, right? Like, it's very hard for to live off of a social work salary. And I heard, you know, I talked to one of the, the gentlemen in the office whose daughter had just got her master's program from American University, and he's like, yeah, that $100,000 uh, school uh, loan that she's paying back. And I was like, oh, that scared me. So they were like, well, if you change your major to business, we can certainly help out whatever your scholarship doesn't provide for. And so I immediately called the dean's office and switched my major um, to uh, the business program. And where were you at school? So my first year, um, i be honest, I just went where I could get a scholarship. My first year I went to Columbia Union College in Tacoma Park, uh, which is a seven-day Adventist. So could you imagine, like, rebellious Heidi, D.C., high school background, going to this, you know, religious Seventh-day Adventist, no meat eating um, yeah, so they put me down in the basement with another senior away from all the girls, um, which was funny, you know, looking back on it, but, um, it was, it was a good experience. Um, but yeah, I wasn't much for the mandatory worships that, you know, it, you know, it was a great experience and I, I definitely have some relationships, um, from, from some friends that I went to school with there, but, um, Bowie State University picked me up my sophomore year. And um, went to Bowie State University then from that point on and um, got a undergrad degree in banking and finance. Um, and, uh, you know, my job paid for pretty much most of that. And then they were like, hey, you know, if you want to get your master's, we're happy to pay for that, too. So I took full advantage of my job providing, you know, um, for what they did for my undergrad and then my graduate, they pretty much pay for all my graduate degree. But you're going to Bowie State, but working in D.C.? Yep. So I got an apartment um, and just would, would commute and worked downtown D.C. Yep. So. And just to close the loop on, on childhood a little bit, so you're essentially homeless junior year? Going into all of my senior. Yeah. So it was like the summer, I want to say, I feel, I feel like it was the summer of my um, when I just finished my junior year and all of my senior year. And just give some perspective on that because most people listening to this have not been in that situation before. And so you sort of hinted that some people knew my situation or some would find out later. What was it like for you walking around with that um, idea that, hey, I don't have a, a permanent home like most people do? How did, how did you handle that? How did you walk around with that? It's, you know... I'll be honest, I feel like a lot of it is a blur. I don't remember um, a lot of, of what my emotions were back then, um, ironically. Um, I, I Do you think there were a lot of emotions? I don't know. I just, I've always been the type, you know, my family wasn't very uh, lovey-dovey. We held a lot, we held a lot of it in. Um, and I think... Um, I probably put on a straight face and a lot of people probably just didn't know um, other than my close family and um, friends. And any memories of embarrassment or feeling that way or you don't or were you more just tough and 
independent and put on a, a smiley face and just just keep going. Yeah, I think it's the latter. Um, you know, I, I had this hard surface, the shell that I just didn't want people to break through. Um, you know, I know deep down I'll, I'll ball in a heartbeat. I can't even watch a pet commercial without crying a lot of times it's ridiculous um but I yeah I always had this like I have to put on this bad girl mentality um toughness to me and I think it it, pro- it probably was because I didn't want people to know that I wasn't going home like you know my father lives in Georgetown um but I I didn't want people to know that I, I was going to Capitol Hill you know Back then, Capitol Hill was not what it, what it is today, but um, I just probably didn't want people to know my situation. Um, how do you think about vulnerability today? Do you see it as a strength, a weakness? Like, how do you think about vulnerability? With me personally? Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think I've learned so much from my experiences that um, I don't think I'm a vulnerable person at all. I, I think I... I'm, I'm still a tough cookie and, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't find myself vulnerable at all. I, I think that, um, I've, I've grown so much over the years, uh, from my experiences, um, that it's made me just at least pretend to be this, uh, <laughs> tough girl that I don't let people peel away at. Yeah. It's. Uh, there's a there's a couple of thoughts that I have. One, there's great work by a woman named Brene Brown. Um, she wrote a book called Daring Greatly. She, she's a rock star. And she talks about vulnerability being the key to courage and courage being the key to leadership. Interesting. And so great leaders, if you look at them, they're usually courageous. And in order to become courageous, you have to be vulnerable. And that's been a game changer for me in my life because we had very different upbringings but I was always a fighter um, and was tough. And as I'm continuing to get older, I'm, I'm doing some work on myself to try to figure out when is that fighter helping me and serving me and when is it actually hindering me. And I think too much of anything can be a bad thing and nothing of something can also be a bad thing. So trying to figure out how I think about strength and potentially shifting it from always valuing fighting. And by fighting, I'm not even talking about physically. I'm just talking about going toward uh, friction and not being afraid of it. And so when is it that it's appropriate for me to fight? And when is it appropriate for me to let go and, and be okay with it? And the interesting thing about you, to shift it back to you, is when we sat down before we fired up the mics... I asked you, is there anything that you don't want to talk about? And you go, oh, I'm an open book. So I think there is a willingness to be vulnerable that you have. Um, and I'm just curious how that will continue to show up. And and just to put clarity and wrap a bow around it, I don't think vulnerability is sharing everything that you do with everyone. And, you know, hey, this is where we're on vacation. And this is what I had for lunch. And no, that's just showing. It's not vulnerable. Right. Vulnerable is love, vulnerable's courage, vulnerable's the willingness to show up as your authentic self. Um, at least that's how I, I see it. So it's an interesting dynamic. And for me personally, I'm wondering how I can continue to have my toughness, my feistiness. Like I'm a short guy. Uh, there's probably some Napoleon complex in me. <laughs> and, uh, and find strength in 
and, and I'm going to use the word power, finding strength and power in this ability to be vulnerable and that fighting isn't always what's necessary to be powerful. And actually, you can be more powerful when you are vulnerable rather than sort of rigid and, and tough. Yeah. And, you know, look, everyone has stories. And I know that people, there's so many more people. You know, I have people that are very close to me who have just been through so much worse than what I have. Like, I, I was... I didn't take advantage of what I was given, right? I, I chose to be um, a rebellious child when I could have been just the sweet little girl that, that every mom hopes for, and especially now that with my two-month-old little girl. Um, so I, I just knowing that there's so many more people that have rougher situations than me, I would never try to... Um, I, I took... I later in life just took advantage of kind of what opportunities have been given to me and moving on and staying positive. And, um, just, you know, as we, we chatted before we started, um, I've learned that being kind is one of the easiest things to do. It's, it takes so much more energy to be mean spirited. And, um, I think that just remaining positive in my outlook on life and things like, look, I've, I've had a lot of hardships and bumps along the roadway, um, that I, that I didn't understand as I was going through them, but just tried to remain positive. And it's always really worked out for me. And, and I've been blessed with so many opportunities and, and things in life that, um, I honestly believe it's because I do remain positive about everything or try to see, you know, the bright side of, of whatever it is that I'm being faced with. And I just, I, I honestly believe that, you know, that's the reason why I've been blessed. Um, not, not seeing the negative things in life. When I hear the word blessed, I think of gratitude. What do you do to practice gratitude? What do you do to bring that out as often as you can? You know, um, my, my one college softball coach, he used to always say, you know, you got to stay focused. You got to stay determined. And the one thing that I that I add to that, because I do, I, as I talk to young people, that's exactly what I tell them: just stay focused, stay determined, and remain driven. Um, I feel like that's probably what I live by most: is um, keeping the eye on the prize sort of uh, mentality. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, as long as you, you know, see an end game and and do everything in your power to get to that um while remaining focused and and have that determination i just feel like that's that's probably what i can say that i live by most do you think that positivity and that bend or lean toward positivity is innate in you or is it something that you cultivated probably the latter um it's hard I don't know. I mean, looking back on my experiences, even at, at the boarding school, Milton Hershey, um, just knowing what other people's lives were like, so different from my upbringing and realizing everything that I was given in life and didn't take full advantage of. And I feel like now I do, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm taking advantage of every opportunity and knowing that life is all you have. So be happy. When did you shift? When did you, when did you go into that space of like, I got to take advantage of this? 
Probably, um, probably. So I spent about 17 years in the Department of Transportation, and I would say probably um, after the first 10 years, just kind of like, oh gosh, what am I going to do with my life? You know, where do I want to be? And just having conversations with others around me and seeing how their lives were, um, and just knowing that what I wanted was to be successful, but remain happy. And, and, and I think ultimately being happy is, is my number one priority in life. I think early on, I probably was thinking, Oh, success, money, every, you know, at the end of the day, I I learned that it's not the material things that matter. Um, it's just being happy within is what will, um, make me happiest the most. There are threads that are coming up, which is be kind to people, be happy, stay positive. There's almost this thread of you valuing being good instead of being great. And I, I'm saying that because one of the few politicians I know, I'll give him a shout out, Andrew Friedson, who's a council member, he just gave a commencement speech at our high school. Okay. And I just watched it a couple hours ago. And that was his whole message is like focus on being good, not on being great. And actually, there's a book over my right shoulder that's The Road to Character by a guy named David Brooks, uh, big New York Times um, writer. And his message in that also is to focus more on the eulogy items than the resume items. And that our society, we're often obsessed with the resume and building the resume. And to Andrew's point, we're focused on being great. And I think both of them, and it sounds like what you're messaging also is, hey, like, be good. Like, be kind to people, treat people the right way go toward happiness, figure out what makes you happy, make sure you have a positive mindset. And those good things potentially could help you achieve what you want to be successful. I'd love to hear you just riff on that and any other thoughts that you have on it. Yeah, I know people say, oh, you shouldn't worry about what other people think about you, but I do. And as small as DC is, um, there's always someone who knows someone if they don't know you they know someone that knows you and I want anyone to just be able to and I feel like now if you were to just go and ask anyone who knows me what's the one thing that you can say about Heidi Shamarati um and that's just that I'm a kind person um I've I don't feel like I have any enemies in this town if you will um or or um any that can really genuinely speak ill of me just because that's just something that I've always strive for. I don't, it takes more of my time to, to not be nice. So, um, we haven't gotten to kind of my, my beyond the department of transportation life, but, um, you know, I, I worked on Capitol Hill, um, for about seven plus years. Um, and I was in, um, a pretty, um, pretty nice <laughs> role. Um, uh, I was the staff director on appropriations for the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development uh, Subcommittee. Um, and there, you know, you meet with so many people who want so, you know, want something, whether it's legislation, policy, or funding. So they, you're always, people are always being really nice to you because they want you to help their organizations or um, so forth. Um, even the members of uh, the, the Senate, um, I just, I knew that, um, based on what I had seen other people in that position prior to me who might not have been as genuine or as nice to others, I knew that that's kind of, 
the position of, of power, if you will, um, that I was going to. You know, as long as my elected, whoever I was working for, I was representing them and um, doing kind of the direction that they knew that they wanted to take the committee. Um, I don't think there's any one person that, that can say that I wasn't genuinely nice to them. Um, and I just, that's just something that I chose to, to live by in that position. What's the downside of taking that approach? Well, um, so I, I, even though I'm really nice, I, I still am me, right? Yeah, you have some fire. Like you can, you, uh, the, it's fascinating as you were telling your story is like, this is someone who's driven and I'm going to use the word competitive, but like you, you can feel that. Like I can see it. This isn't someone who's just a pushover, right? Like there's some fun. I don't take much crap. Yeah. Um, and as I, you know, in my roles, whether I've worked for several administrations in, at the department of transportation and I was in, um, the government affairs shop and in the secretary's office, which was, was political. Right. Um, but I was a career employee, um, but as I worked with um, the different secretaries and the different administrations, um, I didn't necessarily walk on eggshells, right? Like I was, I was me. I was, I was the local girl and I was going to tell you what I thought was best for the best advice, right? And some people didn't like that approach. Um, you know, I, even in my time and working for different senators, um, I, I was a straight shooter, so I, I didn't hold a lot back, um, which looking back could have had me fired many times over. Um, but I think people were like, wow, like, you know, I'm, I'm really close to a lot of, actually I'm close to any of the members that I worked for. Um, I can say that I had a great working relationship with. That's, that's the piece that I think you're probably really good at is building the relationship so that you can speak honestly and authentically. And I could, once again, like, as you're talking, I was waiting for the word relationship to come out. And there it was, because it sounds like you take the time to get to know people and, and understand them. And then because you're on that ground and you treat people the right way, now you're in a space and a place where you can communicate honestly, directly, potentially bluntly. But it starts with the kindness and the relationship. Yeah, I, look. Looking back, I don't know how I do it. I don't know how I start building these relationships with people. Um, but I feel like, you know, what we did was we negotiated policy. We negotiated funding. We, we what we call conference um, with the House and Senate. Um, and you're battling out over these programs. But I don't know. I kind of feel like I've, I've always been the, the middleman, the, the mediator when there's conflict. Um, but still able to negotiate and, and do well for whoever I'm representing. Um, so it's that having that feistiness um, is helpful, but, but being genuine and, and whoever you're working for knows that you're a genuine person. And um, I just, I feel like it's, it's really helped me along the way. Um, I've worked for some challenging members along the way as well, um, but have been able to just build that relationship with them um, that others may not have been able to do. Um, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I think it is because I am so blunt and I would, I would say straight up, like, look, I'm going to give you the advice that you need to hear. You don't have to take it, but I'm, I'm just going to be who I am and be honest with you. And I think a lot of people 
scurry around or, or nervous about kind of what that might lead to. Um, but I've just always had that approach with whoever I worked for um, and being a straight shooter. If you go back to childhood, you had some chaos, you had some uh, upheaval going on there and you still went to school and pitched and went to work and were doing well at work and doing well enough in school. So you've learned how to handle challenges and where others might be scared or run away or be threatened. That stuff's probably minor in comparison to, Hey, I'm throwing my bags out of my dad's house. I don't really want to see him again and I want to go live in this random place in a bad part of town. And so as I'm hearing your story, like it makes sense that you can handle drama or politics um, or challenging, difficult conversations while still being able to take action and be effective. Yeah, I like to believe so. (laughs) Awesome. What did you like about being in politics and being in that eye of the storm? So what's interesting is I remember being detailed from um, the Department of Transportation to um, the Senate. Uh, we were working on a highway bill, right? Um, but when you're younger at the department, I just I didn't have this. Oh, I want to be in politics. I you know I lived in D.C. Um, was surrounded by it, but had no clue. Uh, I remember asking the people that I was working for, oh, okay, well, I live in Maryland now. Who are my senators? Like, I didn't even know who my members were that represented me. Um, you know, D.C., we, 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 we focused on D.C. history. You know, I don't remember U.S. history really being a big thing. It, it, you know, I was probably not paying attention, of course. But um, I had no desire in politics, but I found it fascinating. It was new. It was something that... Um, I just, you know, walking into the U.S. Capitol, seeing the beautiful architecture, the infrastructure, and and all the beautiful paintings, it just wowed me. And I enjoyed it. Like, I was great at the relation. And I honestly think that a lot of D.C. is about relationships and moving policy, um, moving agendas. It's it's about the relationships that you have. I mean, look at the chaos that we are having right now. but I really enjoyed that. And I, while working at the department, I was actually detailed to the Senate to two different committees, um, probably for a total of four or five years, right? Um, even though I still was employed by the U.S. Department of Transportation, I was up on the U.S. Senate for a number of years. Um, so when I did get the phone call ultimately to, to be the staff director on the subcommittee on appropriations, um, I immediately jumped at that opportunity. Um, And I was uh, working for, at the time, it was um, Senator Thad Cochran, who just passed away last week, Um, great man. Um, And my subcommittee uh, chairman at the time ranking was Senator Susan Collins from Maine, um, who is amazing. Um, She and I have a great relationship. And I just, I was taken aback by all the things that you can do for so many, you know, I didn't know anything about HUD and the housing programs. Um, But as the staff director, I had to learn quickly. And just meeting with all the organizations and um, at one point it was 
the youth homeless group that came through. And it just got me thinking, okay, well, I experienced this as a high school student. And what can I do to give back or to try and help resonate or call out the attention that's needed? You know, we were doing so much for homelessness. The Obama administration wanted to end um, homelessness. They had a 2020 goal. But I was like, what are we doing for youth? I mean, it starts there and then trying to make sure that as adults you don't become or remain homeless and so I at that time had not shared my story with Sarah Collins Um, and I didn't want her to just take pity or you know feel like oh because Heidi you know went through this maybe we should do it so I, I basically pitched her the idea of like hey why don't we start this youth demonstration program that we can try to help youth homelessness throughout the nation. Let's give to organizations that are taking on these youth. There's so many kids that are in schools that you really don't see the signs of, you know, so many children who are out there, uh, you know, couch surfing or living with family member to family member because they don't have a home. And she was like, that is so amazing. Like, yes, let's do it. Let's, let's see how we can help. And I was like, great. Well, I'm glad you said that because now let me tell you my story. And she was like, oh my God, I can't believe like you should have told me this. And I was like, no, you know, I'm glad that this is the way that it came out because I wanted you to want it to do it and not because of me and my story. So I actually took her and um, Senator Jack Reed, who are both still the chairman and ranking on that subcommittee. And I took them to Sasha Bruce, let them see where I lived for a couple weeks and then we went to my student or to um, the independent living program and walked them through kind of what the organization does shared with it we went and saw my old apartment and they're like oh my gosh you lived here like alone your senior I was like well alone you know we had other youth um, that were here and we had a counselor who was always staffing the building Um, but yeah it was just it's something that I don't think a lot of members you know could could actually say, wow, like, I actually know someone who went through this. You know, you hear about it, you see it, but you don't, you don't put someone who you know um, through kind of that, that environment. And, and so we took HUD Secretary Julian Castro over there as well um, because we wanted to, to just show the importance of the issue and kind of the direction that we wanted to see um, starting a new program for youth homeless. Um, And Susan Collins, she went and visited, you know, the youth homeless facility in Lewiston, Maine. Um, So it just it it brought me joy to to really share my experience and see how we could help so many more. And so we started just a little 40 million dollar program. And to date, we've we've put in, you know, I say we once an appropriator, always an appropriator. Um, But it's it's grown to about um, over 250 million um, just for that small component. And of course, there's the much larger homeless program that they still also benefit from. But um, it's just great to know that you can do something. And, and that, I think, was probably one of the biggest things of my, um, my role as clerk um, or staff director on appropriations that I was glad to see happen. And um, hopefully it'll, it'll continue. So cool. Do you think that if you had an experience that in your senior year of high school that what do you think you would be doing now if if you hadn't gone through that well um i don't know i mean 
you know, if I wouldn't have even come to D.C. Yeah, let's just say you stayed in Pennsylvania. Yeah, oh gosh. I'd probably, you know, live in rural Pennsylvania somewhere with kids. And th- like, look, there's just not a lot of opportunities, right? So I'd probably not. Yeah, but there's not a lot of, someone else would look at your situation. There's not a lot of opportunities for kids that are 17 and homeless. True, true. So there, who knows what the paths are? It's a loaded question because you don't know. But I think what's really fascinating about it is you have leveraged this bad thing and flipped it on its head and now brought it out at a time where you felt like it could be impactful. But you didn't want to do it in a way that was going to manipulate somebody into doing it or they were going to look at you as a victim in a pity party. And now mm-hmm. because of that, we're going to do it. It's like, okay, now you're on board. Now I need to show you the truth. And this is part of my story and this is part of my truth. And then you need to go spend some time actually seeing people that are just like me. Right. And now you humanize it. And there's something so beautiful about that because I think when we do look at things from a victim mindset, it's really hard because it's really hard to create progress and change. Uh, it becomes challenging because it requ- it suggests that there's a power dynamic there with a victim. And by the way, people are absolutely victimized. There's no question about that. It, I'm not suggesting that people aren't victims. I'm suggesting what do they do sure. with what happened to them and how do they leverage that story and leverage it in a way that can inspire others. And what you did was you leveraged that story at a certain time when someone was open to hear it and at a time where you knew that it could potentially make an impact and look at what it did. It went from 40 to 250 and it's changing the world for people that are in the situation that you were in as a kid. Pretty remarkable. I don't know if you've sat back and really reflected on that. No, I, I think a lot of it is, again, I know that there's so many people who have lived much worse situations than I have. So I, I never wanted to ever feel like what I, that there was anything big about what I had gone through because looking back, I, I, I see it very small, right? Like I lived through it. I got through it, um, used it to whatever advantage I could just personally with, with growing, you know, as an adult. But, um, I feel like I never want to take away from people who really have suffered more than what I have. So I never, I never looked at it like, Oh, let me, let me see how I can flip this into something positive. Um, just because I, I felt like it, it wasn't that big of a deal. You looked at it as part of your story and it's just a a part of the story and part of the journey. Um, but it's worth noting that, that adversity did create an opportunity to do all kinds of good Mm -hmm. Uh, because potentially if you had just stayed in Pennsylvania or if you had just stayed at your dad's house apartment, wherever you were living, if you just stayed in Georgetown, gone through, kept going, perhaps you're sitting in that office in the same exact position and unable to voice for people that might not have a voice. And so I think you're right. Everybody's got stuff. Uh, You never want to play like who has it worse and who has it better. I think like I've met people that have gone through awful, awful stuff and they sit here just like you are. They're like, yeah, but somebody else has it worse. I I don't think you want to play the ranking game. Um, 
but the reality is for all of us to think about how can we use that adversity and turn it into something to make an impact to better the world. Yeah. And for you, 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 you could have just not been vulnerable and stayed in your shell and not shared. Um, and instead you decided to offer. And then with that offering came other people being receptive and then you help change some people's lives, which is pretty, pretty damn cool. Yeah. No, I, it, it's a blessing. Um, you know, me and my family, we laugh about it now. Like here I was the black sheep of the family wasn't going to mount to anything. And, uh, yeah, we just laugh about it now because, um, you know, just, you know, what I'm doing now, having my own firm, um, and just doing great things and being able to just do kind of what I like to do. Um, it's just, it's, we, we, we definitely get a kick kick out of it. We're going to get to your firm shortly. I'm just curious, do you have any religious framework that you use today or, or how do you see religion? No, I, you know, I always, you know, power of prayer and I put God first. Um, I definitely believe in a higher being. Um, I, I always tell people, they say, well, how, how was that growing up? And I was like, yes, I was very confused. Here I had this Muslim father and, you know, when we grew up, we didn't have, you know, I, I didn't understand the whole mosque, you know, women one side, um, men on another. You know, I definitely, well, I told my father, we're not doing that. I'm, I'm drawing the line here. You're not going to have me away from you and like not knowing what's going on. Um, and then my mom who grew up Christian, um, Methodist, you know, would go to Bible camp in the summers, I remember. So I definitely grew up Christian and, um, um, you know, I've, I've been through what, what I think is a lot, but, um, you know, I, I, I definitely believe in a higher being, um, you know, have, have, have had to do some heavy prayer, um, heavy prayers over the last couple of years, just as I've, you know, gone through my own little hardships and have been blessed. Um, so I, I, you know, again, power of prayer and that's that's but what you I don't do. espouse to one specific religion you just believe in a higher uh definitely call myself christian no 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 i i am a, definitely a christian a christian um but i know that i can be a better christian got it okay yeah. so it does provide you a lens and a framework for how you want to show up and how you want to live and, yes. and that's how you see it yeah okay and relationship with mom and dad today awesome so i have a beautiful two-month-old baby girl and uh, my mom who is retired drives from pennsylvania um every week so she she's home with with my baby girl and taking care of her so that i can continue to work and be um doing what i need to do um my dad how much time did you take off after you had oh gosh her? um i didn't so i had a cesarean on a thursday spent two days in the hospital Maybe three. Um, and then Monday I was back at it. I just, um, I'm not one to sit back and yeah, I, I knew that I'd probably be home slitting my wrists if I could not be back, back to work. So Monday I was back at it. Um, but fortunately I can do a lot from home. Um, so I did take advantage of that. Um, but yeah. So, no. mo so mom helps out came in, helped out with that. And then dad, is he still in Georgetown? Yep, he is. Um, but he is awesome. We, um, just have the best relationship. Um, you know, I'd say going to Sasha Bruce is what changed our relationship. It, it somehow night and day, like 
I don't know what it was with him, but he completely just became this open-armed kind of dad that wanted his relationship back with his daughter. And we have been inseparable since. I mean, literally, like every weekend, I'm with my dad. Um, and, you know, even having my 14-year-old boy who, um, you know, he's into karate, little black belt, but um, that was his thing with my son. You know, he was going to come over twice a week, make sure that he went to karate with my son. So he's been very involved in our lives um, to this day. Um, we spend all of our holidays together as a family in Pennsylvania with my mom and dad. Um, so as my mom has remarried over the years, um, you know, her husband knew that it comes with a package and that's my dad. So it's just, it's, it's great. It's amazing. There's this formula that, uh, I've read in a book called peak performance that said that stress plus rest equals growth. I'm thinking about it. It's like, all right, so you had this stressful, tense relationship with your dad. You guys needed a break. <laughs> you go to Sasha Bruce, I'm going to call it rest, but like from a relationship standpoint, it was a rest. And that rest helped unlock the growth that you needed uh, to build your relationship. And um, I think that formula can be used a lot of different places. For example, working out. Like if you just stress your muscles and you don't rest them, you're not going to build muscle. You know, um, for ourselves, like if we are just going a million miles an hour yeah. and maybe you do and you don't ever take time to sleep or to eat and you don't nourish yourself and, and rest yourself then you burn out. Um, so finding that formula, but I never thought about applying that formula to a relationship. And now I'm even thinking about, you know, I, I'm married. We've got two small kids. Like it's a lot of stress, but my wife and I try to give ourselves time to, to also rest. And we're fortunate we've got in-laws and people that can help out as well. And, and that grows our relationship. But if we just are stressing all the time, it can lead to flame out or, or burnout or whatever you want to call it. Totally. I want to give you a megaphone to talk about what you're up to now because I think it's pretty cool and enjoyed chatting with you a little bit before about what you're doing uh, and excited to hear about it. So give people some background and I would love for you to explain it as if people are not familiar with Washington, D.C. and uh, the lobby world and Capitol Hill. Uh, so it's sort of talk about it like you're talking to a bunch of dummies, even though we know everyone that's listening to this is brilliant. <laughs> I'm, sure. the, I'm the dummy. So explain it to me. So in my role as clerk or staff director on the Appropriations Committee, I was responsible for overseeing the U.S. Department of Transportation, uh, all of its agencies. So FAA, uh, Federal Highways, what, whatever it was, maritime, uh, motor carriers, um, and every agency that falls under the Department of Transportation, as well as all of the programs at the Housing Urban uh, Urban Development. Um, and we had a handful of independent agencies as well, um, you know, Amtrak, NDSB. Um, so there I, I um, learned the inner workings of the agencies. Um, and, you know, 17 years of the Department of Transportation, I had already um, learned a lot about what was happening within as well. Um, so what I did was, uh, basically took everything that I knew from the agencies, um, and, um, I'm utilizing that knowledge. Um, and we started, uh, I joined, um, my partner, uh, James O'Keefe, who had his 
firm already established. He had worked on Capitol Hill for many years, and uh, five years prior to me leaving, um, he had started his own firm, and when I left last April after 24 years of federal service, we uh, created O'Keefe Shamarati Strategies, and what it is that we do is consulting, um, providing advice, strategy, legislative um, um, policy surrounded by largely transportation issues, um, but um, always happy to do housing work as well. Uh, and so we um, help clients that are trying to um, educate. I will use the word educate. We are educators, not lobbyists. Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but we um, try to educate um, and inform uh, staff, members of Congress, and their staff on the issues or challenges that the um, uh, whether it's the associations or um, cities, towns, what they might be facing or dealing with and try to see how um, legislation can um, help navigate through those challenges. So the way it works is you've got clients, uh, you go to those clients, you say, what are your biggest challenges? What's going on for you? Uh, and then you basically serve to educate and relay that content and information to the people that can then legislate and, and, and create money and all kinds of funds to serve those types of people. And so uh, your role is to educate them on the challenges so that they know, okay, this is a challenge, this is something that they're dealing with, and then let's try to get them what they're looking for. Is that the, like the simplest dumbed-down version? Sure. I mean, look at the Youth Homeless Program. You know, if if if... People in Capitol Hill do not know that there are these challenges or let's say HUD wasn't allowing uh, youth to receive the services that the homeless program was already providing to 18 plus year olds. Um, that's a problem, you know, and so um, you would use people to say, look, you have you have these opportunities and you have these children who are couch surfing in school. Let's provide some resources so that they also have a place to stay um, because it all starts with shelter. I mean, especially for young people. Um, so it, it's, it's more about educating is what I like to, to call it because um, you're letting people know that there are these issues that could be easily fixed if we just had one tweak in the administration's policy or their regulation that would then serve so many more people. What makes a good educator? What, She's looking at me like that's a crazy question. Like a good lobbyist? Um, no, no, <laughs> I, I use educator. No, but what, yeah, like what are the skills that someone should have if they want to be able to get a message across and educate and uh, in, in some ways change how people see things. Know the programs, know the policy, know what's going on. Um, uh, be open to uh, learning and hearing more ideas of how you can help people. Um, I think, you know, I say educators, the term lobbyist has such a bad connotation to it, right? Like so many people, there, there were some bad apples that... Um, really hurt how Washington is working today, right? You know, earmarks. Earmarks are bad, um, but they're not, right? Like ever since we got rid of earmarks in Washington, D.C., which probably about the 2010 time frame, <clears throat> I would say is when we started to see Washington not get along. And you had this shift in conservatives being put in, 
into office and just not caring about how government operates, willing to shut down the government, willing to hurt so many people. And, you know, earmarks are not bad. You know, earmarks brought money back to local communities that needed the assistance. And people in Washington don't know what's right. It's, it's the members who have been elected to office by these constituents who know that this is where the money is best suited for. Um, but, you know, you had a couple bad actors that really killed, killed the process. Um, and, um, you know, shame on them. Um, but I, I firmly believe that, um, it's, you, you need somebody who knows the issues to be able to convey them. And there's not a lot of people that can speak Washington, you know, um, that don't understand what the process is of moving a bill through Congress. And that's where a firm like us, that's where we can really provide that guidance of when the best time to approach the members, you know, what bill is appropriate for this legislation? Um, how do we move this through Congress? Who do we talk to? Who do we talk to at the administration trying to encourage it? So that's that's really what I, I think makes a good um, lobbyist, if you will. So here you are two months after having a baby. She's mm-hmm. like superwoman over here. Two months after having a baby and now you're, you're back, you're, you're, you're back at it. What do you do to make sure you're running at your best and firing on all cylinders? Are there anything, anything that you intentionally do on a daily basis or a weekly basis? What do you do to make sure that you're at your best? Um, just really what I've done probably most of my career is just staying in constant contact with people, um, maintaining relationships. Um, you know, um, even if I wasn't in this role of, of this position that I am now, um, having this job, I would still be doing that, right? Like I, I like to think that a lot of my relationships really are genuine. Um, and even if I wasn't, uh, you know, a partner at my firm, I, I would probably still be communicating with the same people, uh, meeting them for lunch, doing things outside, having, ha- having a personal relationship with a lot of these folks. Um, that's just who I am. Awesome. It's a beautiful place for us to wrap. Uh, before we finish, let people know where they can find out about the work that you're doing and anything else that you think deserves a megaphone, anything else you're passionate about. Uh, I'll just give you some free space to, to share. Um, well, if anyone's ever looking for uh, guidance or advice or consulting information, they can uh, reach me at Heidi at osstrategiesllc.com. Um, you know, I, I, again, I like to think that, um, you know, I want to be helpful in any way that I can to whether it's, um, you know, I do, I do things on the side as well. That's, that's not for money. So anytime that I can be helpful and even if I can't help you, I'm always willing to steer people in the right direction and give them guidance to who they um, should be or, sh- or should not be talking to. Awesome. Heidi, thank you so much you. for all of the work you're doing. And specifically, as I s- said at the beginning, your work with Sasha Bruce and your willingness to share your story, to put a face to something that really matters. And so thank you for being vulnerable in that way. No, oh, no, I appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. 
I've had a lot of hardships and bumps along the roadway um, that I that I didn't understand as I was going through them, but just tried to remain positive, and it's always really worked out for me, and, and I've been blessed with so many opportunities and, and things in life that um, I honestly believe it's because I do remain positive about everything or try to see you know, the bright side of, of whatever it is that I'm being faced with. And I just, I, I honestly believe that, you know, that's the reason why I've been blessed. Um, not, not seeing the negative things in life.